Let us now turn in the church's confession together and read together from Lord's Day 52. And let us there read only question and answer 127. Lord's Day 52 can be found in the back of our book of praise on page 563. Here in the Lord's Prayer, the matter being dealt with is the Lord's Prayer, the Catechism. Here we read the question, what is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. Will you, therefore, uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory? So far, our reading of the church's confession. After the proclamation of God's word, let us respond in song by singing from hymn 63, stanza 7. Hymn 63, stanza 7, following the sermon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Brothers and sisters, most of us who have grown up in the computer age are probably familiar with the computer game Minesweeper. Minesweeper. For years, this game was included in the Microsoft Windows package, basic package of games, along with Solitaire and eventually also Free Cell and Hearts. Now, Minesweeper is a very basic single-player game which doesn't rank as the favorite game of, of many serious gamers. For the format of the game is very simple. Uh, it's a simple rectangular grid made up of many small squares representing a minefield. And the objective of this game the theory goes, is to clear the board of, of hidden mines without detonating any one of them, being assisted by clues given on adjacent squares, uh, adjacent to squares containing mines. So you locate all the mines safely, and the player wins. Click on one mine, and the player loses the game. The faster you complete the game, the complete the task, the higher your score. That's the basic gist of the game. Now, a player's strategy might vary when or how he or she approaches the game. Some may take a careful, cautious, measured approach, while others charge ahead, clicking recklessly with, uh, with all abandon and very dangerously, ferocious to get a good score, a high score. And in the end, it doesn't really matter how you approach the game or how you play or how many times you hit a mine. 
because it's just a game and, and it quickly and easily refreshes itself into a new game so that the game can keep you busy and occupied for some, some, state of, some time in a state of vegetative boredom until your hand becomes sore. Of course, dealing with real danger is something that will and must dictate a, a different approach. The way that one plays Minesweeper will differ greatly from the way one sweeps for real, actual mines on a real battlefield during a real time of war. Well, in the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, our Lord Jesus alerts us to our spiritual war, a, a real war, the battlefield of faith which is itself a minefield full of many dangers and, and temptations. How is a Christian supposed to fight in this spiritual battle? Well, Christ teaches us how. He teaches us to fight on our knees, fighting through prayer, asking our Heavenly Father to keep and preserve us from falling in times of temptation so that we don't surrender and don't succumb to sin and evil. This afternoon, we'll consider this truth of our spiritual warfare as it has been summarized under the following theme. In the sixth petition, Christ teaches us to pray for spiritual protection. We'll consider first the threats posed by our enemies, secondly, the tactics that we must use to resist them. First, we'll see the threats posed by our enemies. The first step we must take in order to avoid the dangers around us is to identify them correctly. And scripture helps us identify these dangers by referring to them as temptations. In James chapter one, we find that word used repeatedly in the passage we read. And yet that Greek word translated as temptation is the same word that's translated as trial, as it is in verse two of James one. When James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Obviously the word has a broader meaning, referring to tests and trials uh, as well as temptations. And we know that God tries and tests those he loves, as he did, for instance, for Abraham in that well-known account when he commanded Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. In Genesis 22, it is clear that, that this was a God-given test of Abraham's obedience and of Abraham's faith. Yet when God tests his people, Satan stands near, ready to tempt. That's why James specifies that it is not God who tempts, for he cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone, but each, uh, each one is tempted when 
he is by his own evil desire dragged away and enticed, says James. So we need to be on guard against this danger and we need to be alert to the threat of temptation whenever it arises in a time of testing. Now, how does this work out? Well, there are many examples, but let's consider the temptation to to take something that is forbidden, that God has forbidden us to take. This is This was the temptation that brought sin into the Garden of Eden soon after the the beginning, after God created all things good. Even children know that it is wrong to take something that does not belong to them. Right, boys and girls? Even if it is something that you expect to receive at a later time. We know of persons in the Bible who fell to temptation as well. Think of Achan, who coveted and took some spoils of war for himself when he knew that he was not to. Or think of David, who coveted the wife of another man, lusted after her, and then took her for himself, being taken in by the temptation. There's plenty of evidence that we live on, a, on a, a minefield of temptation, temptations set before us and all around us. We must be careful to watch our steps for these temptations are often carefully concealed, camouflaged, disguised. They don't appear to be threatening or deceitful or, or harmful. As James says, they can even be enticing, enticing, enticing as a fishing hook loaded with bait. Bait is always attractive or else it will be refused. And yet what is behind that bait is a deadly threat. There's the hook. When we identify the threat accurately, then we won't make the foolish mistake of taking the bait and thinking, it can't be that bad. Or maybe thinking, it will only be this one time. Or I can always pray for pardon and forgiveness later. Or thinking, will a loving God really forbid this? forbid me from having this? Will he really deny me something that is, that is so pleasurable? Well, brothers and sisters, have you ever thought any one of those things? They are foolish things to think because they ignore what God's word has revealed about the reality of the danger of sin. God's word alerts us to the hooks that are concealed in the bait and it flags for us the mind that is underneath where our foot is ready to step, ready to explode. These are the threats we face, but who has set them up? Uh, Who's behind these threats? Well, the catechism draws our attention to our enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. Regarding the devil, Christ calls him a murderer from the beginning in John 8, 
44. And it is clear from that that there, there is no love in him. He has no love for you. He only desires to see people perish. Well, brothers and sisters, you might be alarmed if I told you that, that there's a murderer after you. But there is. There is a murderer after you. And this murderer is quite skillful at what he does. He's no novice. He's been through this before. He's actually, ex he's actually very experienced. And he knows how to tempt and who to tempt and when to tempt. He knows what lies we tend to believe. He knows what methods to use. And he knows when the timing is right for him to strike, knowing when we let our guard down or when we are unsuspecting of an attack. The devil is not only known as a murderer from the beginning, but he is also called in scriptures an, an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, that means he knows how to disguise himself so that he appears unthreatening, appears harmless, appears innocent, even fun, even exciting sometimes. And so he tempts us by offering us happiness and peace and the like, but through the way of sin. He promises relief from our difficulties and our troubles if we will just give in to sin. Just give in. It's going to make your life way better, he says, when it will only make your life worse, and he knows that. For he is a murderer. Don't forget, he wants to con us into thinking that he is an angel of light who can help us who can meet our needs when he is really an enemy hoping to overthrow us. Well, do you know him as your enemy? It's the question for you, brothers and sisters. Is he on your radar? Are you on the lookout for him? Do you know your Bible well enough to know that his temptations are attacks on your soul? And they're the ploys of a murderer. And that must change the way that we look at sin. We cannot tolerate sin. It becomes undesirable, becomes distasteful, becomes something that you turn and run away from. You don't head towards sin looking for it, but you run away from it and you flee from the devil's lure. And yet the devil is only one of our enemies. The next enemy noted in the catechism is the world. The world is our enemy. John writes this about the world in, in 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17, saying, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he hasn't does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away. 
but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The world that John is speaking of here is the world in which we live. The world with all its sin, with all its temptations and snares and traps. Is that world your enemy, brothers and sisters? This world loves to entice you as well. It loves to seduce you with her attractions and her advertisements, stirring up within you lust and pride and dissatisfaction and discontent so that we want more than what we already have or so that we will want what is not ours to have, even that which is unlawful for us to have. That's why the world wants to suck us into her, her entertainment, her songs, her humor, her shows. It doesn't want you to be discerning about what you watch or what you listen to. It's, it's all fine. There's nothing to worry about, it tells you, as long as you feel good. That's what matters. And yet it has a deep and powerful impact, an impact on your heart, on your mind, on your desires, pulling you away from the Lord rather than drawing you nearer to him. That's what the world likes to do. But don't be fooled, brothers and sisters. When you start to love the world, the world laughs. For it has, for it has taken another prisoner for itself. And so do not let this world entice you and blind you so that you lose your interest in the world to come. God's word is clear. You cannot love both God and mammon. You cannot be cross-eyed, fixing your eyes on both worlds. It's impossible. Though we live in this world, we must not be of this world, for the sinful world is your enemy. Now there is one more enemy as well to mention, and that is our own flesh. That shows us that temptations don't only come from, from outside of us, from the devil and from the world, but they also well up from inside of us. They come from within our own hearts. Well, in a war, in a real war, one of the most shocking things to discover is that there is an enemy behind friendly lines, wearing the same uniform, but who is an enemy, a traitor. Now we have such an enemy within. He secretly opens the way and unlocks the door for sin to enter and infiltrate our lives. Why did David sin and commit adultery with Bathsheba? Because he bowed to the flesh and he let sin enter his heart. Why did Hezekiah sin by, by showing off the treasures of Israel? Because he bowed to the flesh and he let the sin of pride enter his heart and rule his life. And if it was a battle for David and for Hezekiah, then 
why would it not be a battle also for you, brothers and sisters? We have three dangerous enemies and the catechism mentions two other important details about them. First, it calls them our sworn enemies. They're our sworn enemies. For they are not about to give up. They're not about to retreat. They are intent, having the the drive and, and the commitment of a suicide bomber on a mission, not only to disrupt and disturb our lives, but wanting nothing less than your death. That's what they want. That's what they're seeking. Nothing less. They're not interested or content to stop short and to ease up and just, just to give you a scare, just to give you a fright. No, these enemies are out to kill you spiritually. And the second important detail the catechism gives us about them is that they are our constant enemies. For it says they do not cease to attack us. They don't go away just for nothing. They, they, they are like a, tag team wrestlers that never let up, never relent. They're working together in tandem to plant the weeds of, of sinful ideas as seeds in our minds. And they want to watch them grow by watering them and giving those seeds what they need to, to grow into lively weeds that fester and grow. And so that's how they put their plans into action, slowly but surely, until they take over. Brothers and sisters, this afternoon we have seen our, our enemies. We've, we've studied their tactics to some degree. We must be aware of them or, or we'll be vulnerable as sitting ducks waiting to be plucked off. For it's a sad thing, brothers and sisters, it's a sad thing when people don't know who their real enemies are, isn't it? They might judge the wrong people to be their enemies like their parents or their, their spouse or their teacher or their elders or politicians or, or somebody else, anybody else. They, they point the finger, they pick a target, and they place the blame there. They don't see that the enemy is much closer to them than they think. The enemy is also much worse than they think. But by God's grace, through his word, we may be those who know our enemies We may study their tactics and learn how to fight against them and know also the tactics we must use to resist them. And that brings us to our second point. Well, brothers and sisters, if we are in a battle, and we are, then we are soldiers. And if we are soldiers, then we must fight under the banner of the cross of Jesus Christ. (coughs) But this does not mean that we must fight physically, like the ancient crusaders thought that they had to do, fight physically. Rather, we must fight spiritually. 
Although we used to be on the other side, fighting against God, resisting God, and not resisting the devil, not resisting the world, not resisting our own flesh, but going and following our desires in that regard. Yet now, because Christ has, has ransomed us and, and redeemed us to his kingdom, we are, we are no longer on the devil's side, under his power, under his influence, no longer. But as Lord's Day 1 says it, he has set me free from the power of the devil, speaking of the work of Christ, and he has made us his own so that we now belong to him. And when he made us his own, he also supplied us with a a new heart and a new love and a new desire for obedience, and he gave us new weapons as well with which to fight the good fight. And so we are soldiers. But what kind of soldiers ought we to be? What kind of soldiers are we? The answer to the question of what kind of soldiers we are is nothing much, nothing much. We are not soldiers who can boast in our own power and in our own might, for we are weak, that's our confession, really weak, so weak, the catechism says, That's your confession, that's my confession too. That we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Well, that's not really a flattering picture, is it? Indeed, it's not. Christians are no heroes, let alone superheroes on the battlefield, winning awards for our own bravery, our own courage, our own conduct. Rather, we are are more like a coward, a scaredy cat, slow and sluggish in the fight of faith, don't really want to get into it, don't really want to get involved, weak in strength, lacking in zeal. Have you come to realize that about yourself? Do you see where are your own weak spots? Well, the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul often a a venerated saint in church history. In Romans 7, he speaks of how he didn't want to sin and yet he would still fall into sin. And he expresses discourage over his weaknesses and his shortcomings. He was honest about his struggles. Well, in one sense, the, the battle is so lopsided. Here we are. Weak, helpless soldiers, while on the other side, there are these these mighty enemies, our sworn enemies, our constant enemies. It seems like a, a perfect battle to lose. So how will God's people fight? Well, the answer, as it's been said before, the answer is that we fight on our knees, on our knees, That's what Christ is teaching us with the sixth petition. For as we read in Ephesians 6, after all the pieces of the armor of the Lord are mentioned one after the other, and we don't have time to to get into unfolding what all of that means, yet after it's all complete, we are told uh, to wear these things, but not to forget 
prayer. Paul says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, being alert and always keep praying for all the saints. So there we have it. The Christian must fight on his or her knees. Do you do that? Do you pray for strength? in the battle against temptation, before temptation, during temptation. It might not be a lengthy prayer, but even just a a simple prayer for help. We need to do that. Do you pray to stand? The catechism says in ourselves we cannot stand even for a moment, but looking outside of ourselves, in the work of Jesus Christ, in his person and work, that is where we find the power to stand up and withstand the attacks that are brought against us. And do you pray for the Spirit? As we'll sing following the sermon, uphold us by your Spirit's might, put mortal enemies to flight. The Spirit can overpower and overthrow the strongest force that we could imagine that can be brought against us, even overturning hard hearts and making them soft and receptive hearts. How can we fight without him, without the spirit? And do we pray for those who are struggling? Christ teaches us to pray in the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are not only to pray for ourselves then, but also for others. In the battle and in the struggle, we must lift one another up in prayer. What we all must see is that the Christian life is no vacation, but it's a a vocation. Many of us are planning, I'm sure, our, our vacations this summer, but do we give enough time? Do we give as much time to 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 working on our vocation, our vocation to fight against sin and to overcome sin, to know how to resist it. And, and this is work. It's not a lie. It is work that is more important than our daily occupation, our daily work and employment. For would Paul have bothered, you think, to, to describe all the, the pieces of the outfit, of the armor of God and in such elaborate detail and, and with such precision and with such thoughtfulness as he does if it wasn't necessary for us to put it on, to wear it, and to go out into the battle armed for battle. As Christians, we are in a war every day. And it's not an easy war. It's, it's not a game we play, win or lose, as long as you have fun. It's not minesweeper. But it's a lifelong battle that we'll wage, we will wage it right until we are on our deathbed. But there does come an end to this war. We will at last obtain the full and And the complete victory, for the victory has already been won. Christ conquered his enemies at the cross. That's the gospel. 
And by grace, he, he brings us to share in the spoils of his victory. Well, by God's grace, we've come to know that we are weak in ourselves and we are helpless. We are unable to prevail. Yet in Christ, Paul speaks of believers in the book of Romans as more than conquerors. That is what we are, more than conquerors. It's such an amazing statement to, to make. It's an amazing statement for us to unpack mentally, for us to think about deeply. We are, we are more than conquerors, not because we fought so well. It was not because we were so faithful, so obedient. We may have suffered many great defeats at the hands of our enemies, as did David, as did Peter, as did Paul, as, as have all saints throughout all, all history of the church. But victory comes from nothing that we do, but from what Jesus Christ has done. We are more than conquerors because we fight from victory, the victory that he has gained and obtained and now gives to us freely as a precious and gracious gift to those who have faith in him. And so brothers and sisters, as those who know the victory of Christ, to be sure, never give in to the losing side of the battle. Never let go of the powerful weapon that God has given you, the weapon of prayer. Amen.